2 Samuel 16 at verse 15. And Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And it came to pass when Hushai the archite, David's friend, was come unto Absalom, that Hushai said unto Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Why wentest thou not with thy friend? And Hushai said unto Absalom, Nay, but whom Jehovah and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his will I be, and with him will I abide. And again, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in thy father's presence, so will I be in thy presence. Then said Absalom to Ahithophel, Give your counsel what we shall do. And Ahithophel said unto Absalom, Go in unto thy father's concubines, that he hath left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that thou art abhorred of thy father. Then will the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom's tent upon the top of the house. And Absalom went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if a man inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. We've been looking at a couple of rascals, if I can use that term, Zeba and Shimei. Now we have this unholy trinity, if you will, concluded in the person of Ahithophel. There's Zeba, Shimei, and Ahithophel. So the question is fair to ask, who was Ahithophel? Ahithophel, the scriptures tell us, was a cherished and esteemed companion of David. That they enjoyed a close friendship, not unlike that between David and Jonathan, perhaps. We find that in the 55th Psalm, where we read the words written by David himself with regard to this matter. At verse 12, David says, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my companion and my fate familiar friend. We took sweet counsel together. We walked in the house of God with the throng. This was a, a very familiar friend of David's, a close companion and his counselor. And David refers to that, most writers uh, believe in that 55th Psalm. A man mine equal, he said. <clears throat> his guide, his counselor, his acquaintance. And, and he goes on to say that they took sweet counsel. I think we can, we can consider that sweet fellowship. We took sweet fellowship together and walked unto the house of God in company. David depended upon Ahithophel's wise counsel in that portion that we read, the final verse, the counsel of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days was, was if a man inquired at the oracle of God. 
And so was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. And David and, and then later Absalom depended upon his wise counsel. Ahithophel first came to our brief attention as we were making our way through the book of 2 Samuel in the 15th chapter. And on that occasion, it was simply pointing out that Absalom asked them to send for Ahithophel. He sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gilo. And so now we hear also, as David is ascending the mount in tears with his head covered and his feet bare, he was told that Ahithophel is with Absalom. And that was the occasion when David cried unto God, Lord, defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. It struck him to the heart that this friend of his had gone with his rebellious son, Absalom. It struck him to the heart and it also struck fear into his heart because he knew the wisdom, he knew the greatness of the counsel of Ahithophel. And so he cried unto God that he would spare him, that he would save him by defeating the counsel of Ahithophel. As I said, he comes to our attention there. One writer says when, when Ahithophel left Jerusalem in the palace to return to his home in Gilo. I don't know that that's chronologically correct, but we'll be glancing at that a little bit. How did he possibly, this is the real question, how did Ahithophel possibly become the enemy of David? Somebody that was, was his familiar friend, somebody with whom he took sweet counsel together and went to the house of God together with him his guide, his equal, his acquaintance. How did that happen? How did he possibly become the enemy of David? We're not really told. We're just told that Absalom sent for him and he left Gilo and went to Absalom. We're not told any motive. We're not given anything at all by way of information about why he turned into David's enemy how he possibly could become an enemy to such a great friend, such a familiar friend. It's a puzzle. And yet most people seem to have accepted that, well, that's it. And this is a type of Judas Iscariot. Christ even refers some of the language in a, in a psalm that's spoken uh, of Ahithophel, almost certainly. And Christ refers it to himself in John 13. He refers the words to himself, that this, this was a reference to Judas Iscariot. So most people are simply content, it seems to me, that with the fact that here we have a type of Judas Iscariot, and we don't really need to know anymore, except that like Judas Iscariot, we will see in the future that he, he went and hanged himself, like Judas Iscariot went and hanged himself. Is that, the, is that the complete answer? Is that the whole story? Or is there, as Paul Harvey used to say, a rest of the story? How did he possibly become the enemy of David? Many believe, many believe that Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. 
that she, in fact, when we think about Nathan's parable that he delivered to David to convince him of his wickedness in his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, and he used that expression in the parable of one, the, the neighbor's only little you lamb. His little you lamb. Many think that Nathan was referring to Bathsheba even in that, that she was Ahithophel and Uriah, her husband, that he was, she was their little you lamb that we find in Nathan's parable. Are they correct in this? It deserves investigation at least, and we must concede, frankly, that it, while it seems very plausible when we investigate this, we admit that we cannot demonstrate the fact of it in any certainty. However, in a criminal case, the prosecution generally deems it necessary and helpful, needful, to demonstrate both motive and opportunity. We need to have a motive for this crime. We need to have opportunity. Was he in the country or not? If we're looking at some person that may be considered a suspect in a crime, why would he have done it? We need to have a motive. David's violation of Bathsheba was motive enough if indeed Ahithophel were Bathsheba's grandfather. Some of us are grandfathers and have a, a distinct relationship with granddaughters. It's not difficult to imagine a distinct relationship between Ahithophel, especially if this was his only granddaughter, that one little ewe lamb that he would take it very uh, hard that his friend and his king would violate his granddaughter, his own granddaughter, his only granddaughter, that little ewe lamb. So he had a motive, if that's the case. He had a definite motive. And Absalom's rebellion <clears throat> would provide him with the opportunity that perhaps he had even been waiting for as he had somewhat retired into his hometown of Gilo. If we take this to account, if we go ahead with our thesis here, then Ahithophel probably had a falling out with David over the matter and left at that point in time. That's probably why he was waiting in Gilo not necessarily waiting for Absalom, but he, was, he had just left. He went to his own hometown. He was no longer going to be David's counselor, nor David's friend, the man who had violated his granddaughter. But Absalom's rebellion, when it began, provided the opportunity for which Ahithophel was prepared in the gifts that he had, in the abilities, that wisdom, that counsel that he had, that he possessed. So I believe that we can see that 
that he had motive and that he had now opportunity. And it's interesting to note as we glance back that all Absalom had to do was send for him and here comes Ahithophel galloping to Absalom. He didn't have to send an entourage to persuade him or any such thing. He simply sent for him. And in that respect, in that sense, I believe Ahithophel was waiting for an opportunity perhaps to get even with David. There are no other Ahithophels in the scriptures. The arguments that are given for him being her grandfather are what we read in in chapter 11 of this book in the third verse when David had viewed Bathsheba taking a bath and he asked about her. He sent and inquired after the woman in verse 3 of chapter 11 and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? There are only two occasions when we read that name Eliam. And so that's been laid hold of as grounds for considering because the other place that we read it is in this list of David's mighty men in chapter 23 toward the end of the book. We read of many of these beginning in verse 24 with Asahel, the brother of Joab, as one of David's mighty men. And then on down, we read Shammah, the Herorite, Ahiam, the son of Sherar, the Arorite, Eliphalet, the son of Ahashbai, the son of the Maacathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro, the Carmelite, Paarai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelik, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Beerothite, armor bearers to Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Gerab the Ithrite, and this is the reason I read on to the end, Uriah the Hittite. It's very likely that this Eliam was not only the son of Ahithophel, but a comrade with Uriah the Hittite in the army of David, the king. Those are the only two occasions when this name Eliam is mentioned in all of scripture and here both times in the book of 2 Samuel. It seems a good argument to make that this Eliam, the husband or the father rather of Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, that he indeed is this Eliam of chapter 23, the son of Ahithophel, which of course would make Bathsheba, the granddaughter of Ahithophel. There are no other Ahithophels, no other Eliams in the scripture, only in these two passages. Some would counter, they would argue that Ahithophel would not have been old enough to have a granddaughter of marriageable age. That seems an odd argument to make. We're not told anything about Ahithophel's age. Nothing. We're not really told anything about Eliam's age. We're not told anything about Bathsheba's age. But I have read in histories where 
Jewish girls got married pretty young, and they get married pretty young today, actually. I don't think there's any argument there at all. The other argument, aside from trying to say that he's not old enough to have a granddaughter, is suggesting that, that he must have been, because he was David's equal and his companion and his friend and something like Jonathan, that he must have been somewhere around the age of David, and that doesn't hold any water actually when you consider it either. I like to think that, that I can have an equal, I can have a guide, I can have an acquaintance, I can take sweet counsel together, that I can walk into the house of God in the company of a man that is 25 years younger than myself and that it's not any kind of a problem. Why can't, why do, why do, why do they have to insist that Ahithophel must have been much older is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. It's very reasonable to suppose that this Eliam was well known as the son of Ahithophel. All they said is, is, is not this the daughter of Eliam? They don't even say any more about who he is, as though it would be assumed that they would know that Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. We took sweet counsel together. We went unto the house of God together, David and Ahithophel. Most writers imagine David was about 50 years old at this time. And there's no problem with a man <coughs> 62, 65, having an 18-year-old granddaughter. You can do the math at any time you want. It's not a problem. <laughs> so, I have a granddaughter past 30. It's just not a problem. So I don't think that's a good argument, and that's the only ones that I read that anyone made. And I think there are a lot of uh, things in the text that suggest strongly, again, admitting that we can't be absolutely dogmatic about it. We read from the words of Matthew Henry, quote, the person Absalom especially courted and relied upon in this affair was Ahithophel, a politic thinking man, and one that had a clear head and a great compass of thought. That had been David's counselor, his guide, and his acquaintance. Those words Matthew Henry takes from that 55th Psalm, his familiar friend, and so on, in whom he trusted who did eat of his bread, from Psalm 41.9. But upon some disgust of David's against him, or his against David, Matthew Henry admitting he doesn't know the problem. Some disgust of David's against Ahithophel, or some disgust of Ahithophel's against David. He was banished or retired from public business and lived privately in the country. I'm greatly inclined to believe that it was some disgust of his against David regarding his granddaughter Bathsheba and that he retired from public business and lived privately in the country in Gilo in his hometown until Absalom called for him. He was his friend as well as his trusted counselor. It's an incredible relationship, and, and it would take something incredible to break it, I would imagine. The only alternative motive suggested is that 
uh, I mean, that any writers even suggested is that of a lust for power. Well, we know that that has overtaken many men, surprising, surprisingly, and it's not impossible. But did he not already, as what amounts almost to prime minister, did he not already have great power? He was, he was the king's right-hand man, his chief counselor, like Joseph was unto Pharaoh. And, and, and look at the difference between Ahithophel and John the Baptist. And I bring that up to say that should not Ahithophel's reaction to David's sin been more like John Baptist's response to Herod over his sin of having his brother's wife? Yes, John Baptist lost his head. Yes, Ahithophel may have lost his head. After all, David had Uriah slain. But shouldn't that have been more of his reaction rather than just packing up his things and leaving, going back to his hometown? Should he not have remonstrated with his friend? Should he not have rebuked him? Should he not have challenged him about this sin? Is that not what real friends are supposed to do according to the scriptures? According to our New Testament scriptures, is that not what should be done? Friends don't let friends drive drunk, we see on posters. Friends don't let friends sin. This is a case we were talking a week or so ago about Matthew 18 in Sunday school. This is a case where, where Ahithophel should have challenged David in the way that Christ teaches his disciples that someone that sins that, that the individual sinned against should go to him, just the two of them. We don't find anywhere that Ahithophel took any action like that. This is the way it should be dealt with, and that might end the matter. It might not have to go any further than that. And I believe that's the patent concept in Christ's teaching in there. We are to nip it in the bud if we can. That's what friends do. You don't let a friend go driving drunk. You don't let a friend go on in sin without trying to correct his course. But that's not what happened. And Ahithophel was there waiting when Absalom called. And now today, we've read this morning about the first counsel that Ahithophel gives to Absalom. Wicked counsel terribly wicked counsel. We're, we're told that, that Ahithophel's counsel was this, if a man inquired at the oracle of God. One writer suggested it seems more like he had inquired at the oracle of the devil. He came up with this wicked proposal for Absalom, this counsel of what he should do going in onto his father's concubines, and that's where I leave it. Without any more detail, it's not necessary. Not necessary at all, but was this, a, was this in the mind of this grandfather, this hurt, this hurt and insensitive grandfather, was this a get-even thing? It would seem like, wouldn't it, paying kind for kind? Here's the counsel that I'm gonna give to you, Absalom. And I believe that this is a practice in the, in the East of those, of those days that, that when there was a conqueror, 
even, we even read that God gave Saul's wives to David. That this was, this was something that was done and it was a badge, as it were, of this man is on the throne now. He's got the former king's wives. That means he's the king now. And it was something of a badge. So it wasn't that it was so illogical, but it was wicked. It was wicked. And we have to ask, did the offended grandpa, did he delight perhaps in such an irony? Well, we know from Nathan's communicating God's words to David when he went with him with that parable and then rebuked David with God's rebuke and the determined justice that God would mete out. And one of those things that was said, not only I gave, I gave to you, Nathan speaking for God, I gave to you all these wives you didn't need anymore. But he said, because you've done this, because you've done this in the sight of all Israel, he said, your wives are going to be violated and they're going to be violated before all as well. Because you've done this to Bathsheba. And all Israel knows about it. They know what you've done. And you've brought shame upon yourself. And you've grieved your God. And you've broken his commands. I'm going to do it in sight, in sight of all Israel. But we read about the oracle of God here. And the oracle simply means words. So it was as though he, he either was speaking what he thought was the word of God or what the people thought was the word of God coming from this brilliant mind. Perhaps it was something like when Herod got up and preached in Acts, or spoke in Acts 12 and the people shouted, the voice of a God and not of a man. And they credited Herod with great wisdom and that he was speaking uh, as the voice of a God, perhaps there were some of those that took this view of Ahithophel's counsel of his words. But it simply says that it was as if a man inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel. We don't think that Ahithophel was a latter-day Balaam. He may have convinced others, we're not, we're not told. He may have convinced others that he received direct revelation from God. We have people doing that today, haven't we? And during, and during the, the apostles' time. And ever since the beginning. So perhaps, perhaps he had convinced them. Perhaps he had convinced them. Spurgeon made a very brief, pithy remark about turning to the oracle of God. He simply said, we must turn ourselves evermore to the blood besprinkled mercy seat of Christ's atonement. And again, as I said, oracle, you may have in your margin as I have in mind, that it simply means word. And Spurgeon is taking it a step further and thinking in terms of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. But we see in these things, and I believe that that's the lesson that we have here.
from this circumstance, this part of the history of David. We see in these things how that our sin can be multiplied by how it affects those in our family and around us. We may have an effect by the good that we do. That's what we're called to do, to be salt and light, to have an effect on those around us by the good that we do and the good that we are through Jesus Christ. But Ahithophel was responsible for his behavior. And yet, <clears throat> David's sin was a catalyst in his former friend's ultimate destruction. You see what I'm saying? Ahithophel is responsible, human responsibility. He did what he did. Nobody twisted his arm. No one made him do that. And yet David bears some responsibility as being the catalyst for Ahithophel's sin. He was a catalyst. Be sure, not only that your sin will find you out, but that it will affect and infect others in your family and of your acquaintance. I was reminded of Achan. You remember Achan, the one that hid the stuff from Jericho, the gold and silver and the fancy robes and so on. Achan didn't perish by himself. His whole family was slain because of his sin. It affected his whole family. And Christ speaks about causing others to stumble in the negative sense about not doing it. He says, whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me, but whoso shall cause one of these little ones that believe on me to stumble, and he may not be talking about little people as far as size or little people as far as age, but just people young in the faith. He said, whoever would cause one of these to stumble, it is profitable for him that a great millstone should be hanged about his neck and that he should be sunk in the depth of the sea. John Donne wrote famous words, no man is an island. No man is an island. And what we do is seen by others. And if we do good, that's seen for the good of the gospel. But if we do evil, that's seen for the reproach of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We do not live to ourselves alone. The Pharisees, they ran around, Christ told them, making, making proselytes. And when they had, they, they made others twofold more the sons of hell than themselves, Christ said. By their bad examples, by their wickedness, we affect people one way or the other by our behavior. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, he said. Sir Walter Scott, in one of his novels pen these words oh what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive oh what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive when first when we start when we begin on some course some ill course We've all tried to remove a cobweb one time or another, haven't we? How do you do removing a cobweb? You take something to try to get it off, and where's the cobweb? It's stuck onto whatever you use to get it off. So you get something else to get it off that, and now it's stuck on that. It's hard to get rid of a cobweb 
because it's so sticky and that's what sin is like, brothers and sisters. That's what sin is like. Trying to get, in a sense, untangle this web that, that we have woven. There are really not very many spider webs that don't get tangled. There are not very many sins that don't get tangled up, that don't entangle others. They're difficult to deal with. It's like trying to get peanut butter off the roof of your mouth. That's how cobwebs are. That's how sin is. There are always ramifications from our actions. Ramification is simply a subdivision or single part of a complex structure analogous to what? The branches of a tree. That's a good analogy, isn't it? Ramifications. The branches of a tree are ramifications from the trunk, from the root. What happens to the root usually extends to the branches, in other words. The root is that first sin. The family that's affected are the branches and it usually affects more than just yourself or even the one that you sinned against directly. It affects others almost always. It's not a slippery slope. At least it's not only a slippery slope, it's a pit. Collateral damage, we hear that in wartime language, in battlefield language, collateral damage. These ramifications are analogous to collateral damage, unintended consequences. Civilian deaths from an airstrike are unintended, but the people are still just as dead. There are unintended consequences from sin. David never imagined that a consequence of his sin with Bathsheba would eventuate in the death of the illegitimate child that she bore. That it would eventuate in the death of Uriah the Hittite. That it would eventuate in the rape of his daughter Tamar. The murder of the rapist Amnon by his brother Absalom. The rebellion of Absalom. And eventuate, eventually, in Ahithophel's suicide. I don't believe David ever imagined that. But that's what I'm talking about. The collateral damage, the ramifications, the unintended consequences of sin that are illustrated here. Oh, the collateral damage. Oh, the unintended consequences. As our brother prayed, these things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages are come. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Woe unto the world, Christ said, because of occasions of stumbling. For it must needs be that the occasions come, but woe to that man through whom the occasion cometh. It's not hard to see the point there, is it? These other things are going to happen, but woe to the man that brought these occasions on. If thine eye, here's what Christ says to do, if thine eye causeth thee to stumble, did David's eye cause him to stumble? I guess so. 
It's pretty conspicuous that it was his eye. If thine eye causeth thee to stumble, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is good for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast in to the hell of fire. I'm convinced from David's penitent psalm, Psalm 51, that if he had it to do over again, he would have plucked out both his eyes after all that collateral damage that he had to witness. The death of friends, the death of sons, the rape of a daughter. But he wrote that psalm, that penitential psalm, and he cried unto God, make me to hear joy and gladness. Hide thy face from my sins. Cast me not away from thy presence. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I don't have to be anachronistic. I can be imaginative as I imagine the sweet psalmist of Israel asking me to sing with him in heaven. To sing Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus. Greater far than all my sin and shame. Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, help us to deal with our eyes, to deal with our hands, to deal with our feet to not take any of them anywhere that thou would not have us to take them. Oh, Lord our God, keep us from sin, we pray. Help us to keep ourselves from sin, we ask. For thy glory and for the building of thy church, through Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Amen. Just stand for the benediction. From Psalm 121. Verses three through five, this lovely promise, he will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Jehovah is thy shade upon thy right hand.